What does it mean to be spiritual? When you think of the word spiritual, or when you think about a spiritual person, a few images might pop into your mind. You might think of somebody who speaks eloquent things of mysteries of the universe or something like that. Or, you know, he's sitting around meditating around his crystals, or he feels connected to the universe when he surfs or does yoga or something like that. These are kind of vague religious types of ways of describing spirituality today. But the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians says that spirituality is not about emotional experiences or abstract ideas. Spirituality is about a person. Spirituality is about a cross. Spirituality is about Christ crucified. And the spiritual person is somebody who has conformed their life, or rather is in the process of conforming their life into the image of Christ, the crucified one. Spirituality looks like Jesus. And this is the message of 1 Corinthians, how the cross is one of the most significant images of understanding the Christian life. Because the cross is the gateway to the resurrection. Humiliation is the gateway to exaltation. And our weakness is actually the vessel through which God's power is manifested. And it's completely at odds with the way the world thinks about power and status and glory. And the Apostle Paul is writing 1 Corinthians in order to teach Christians how to live counter to the world that they find themselves a part of. And that the cross changes how we think about everything, social status, sex, lawsuits, divorce, singleness, money, food, gender, class, our spirits, and our very bodies. All of it, through the lens of the cross, is radically reshaped and transformed. And the message that Paul is getting across in 1 Corinthians is that the wisdom of God is not the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of God is something so scandalous and counterintuitive that the world can't help but see it as absolute foolishness. And the wisdom of God is manifested perfectly in the person of Jesus Christ. This is Understanding 1 Corinthians. First Corinthians is like listening to the second half of a phone call. When you see somebody on the phone outside, you only hear one half of the conversation. And if you're listening carefully, you can make out what the other half of the conversation is. You can see the way the person is answering and say, well, if that's how they're answering, this might be a potential question they're being asked. Now, First Corinthians is actually the second letter that Paul has written to the church at Corinth. The first letter, we could call it Zero Corinthians, uh, is something that he sent out to Corinth and was responded to by Chloe, a prominent member of the church at Corinth, and her people. And so they send a letter back in response to his zero Corinthians, and Paul writes 1 Corinthians in response to their response. And then, of course, they respond again. Paul writes another letter. They respond back, and they uh, have him write another letter back to him, which is actually 2 Corinthians. So if you're keeping track at home, there are really four letters to the Corinthians, and we only have two of them because that's the way that God's providence happened, and we only need these two. But it's kind of difficult to piece together what's going on, but I think if we pay attention, we can start to see some of the issues that Paul is speaking to in the church at Corinth. First, a little bit of background on the church at Corinth. Corinth is uh, sort of like a New York City. Uh, it, it's, it's a place where there's not a lot of old money, it's a lot of new money. People who were former slaves, formerly of the lower class, have made it big in trade and commerce, and now they're the new rich class 
in Corinth. So this is new money, people uh, with, with a lot of upward mobility hitting new peaks of wealth and social status. And they are there in the mix, in the same congregation with poor people, blue collar people, people who are uh, the, on the lower stratosphere uh, underneath blue collar uh, of, of society. So there's this interesting class mix within the church. And Paul is trying to speak to them with theology to teach them how to bridge those gaps, how to view each other in ways that are fundamentally different than how the world views one another. So Paul is writing 1 Corinthians as a pastoral letter, or really an apostolic letter to straighten out some of the issues that are happening in the church. And as we go through the series, you're going to see how Paul applies the logic of the cross, the fact that the wisdom of God is something so foolish to the world. He applies that framework to all of these aspects of life. So as we read 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, we're going to read two chapters. I want you to start to note the ways in which Paul upends the normal way that we look at one another. And he upends it by giving us a new ethic, a new way of seeing people, seeing our possessions, seeing our bodies, and seeing our relationships as he transfigures it through the lens of the cross. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Behind that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling. 
brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. The Apostle Paul begins by reminding the Corinthians that everything they have is from God. The church of God was sanctified in Christ. Paul is called by the will of God, and the church is called to be saints together. And grace and peace come from God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the only thing that the church is called to do is to themselves call upon the Lord. And there's a sense of dependence. Everything that we have is from God as a gift. And he sets this up in the very beginning to let the Corinthians know, you guys are dividing up into different factions. Some people are saying, I am part of Paul's group, or I'm part of Apollos' group, or I follow Cephas, or some even say, I'm part of Christ's group. These different factions competing against one another. And Paul's saying, you're so proud about these things, but don't you know that everything was given to you? Why are you keeping score? Why are you comparing yourself to one another when everything you have is a gift of grace? You're trying to outrank each other in Christianity. And you have missed the fact that all of it is a gracious gift. You're acting like children. And he goes even further, right? He thanks God because God's grace has been given to them in Christ Jesus, that they are enriched in every way, in speech and knowledge. In other words, they don't need to join an elite group of secret Christians who have an extra level of understanding and revelation. No, in Christ Jesus, the grace of God has come and you are enriched in every way. You have all speech and all knowledge. The testimony of Christ is confirmed among you. You don't lack any gift. You will be sustained, guiltless, Christ is with you. If you have Christ, you have the whole Christ. You don't get part of Christ. You don't get Christ in little installments as you get better and better at being a Christian. But from the moment you believe, 
you receive all of Christ, and all of Christ is sufficient for you. And then he goes to the divisions in the church. So he says, if this is true, if you have all of Christ, the whole Christ, then why are you dividing up the body? Why are you splitting Christ up into multiple factions? So Chloe, seems like a a woman who's prominent in the church at Corinth, is, is telling Paul, look, this is what's happening at the churches in Corinth. And Paul's like, why are you guys breaking up the factions? You have a you have a club called Paul's Club. You have people saying that I'm of Paul. Paul's disgusted by this. In fact, he even says, look, I'm glad I didn't baptize more of you because who knows, if I would have baptized a bunch of you, you would have thought that uh, that that, in, in, that initiated you into my Paul cult or something like that. Pa- Paul is absolutely horrified by a cult of personality around him. And the reason is, if it becomes about Paul, or Apollos, or Cephas, or if people are saying, we're the true followers of Christ, we have more of Christ than you, that's going to empty the cross of Christ of its power. And and Paul is is telling them, look, I'm not coming with eloquence. I'm just coming to preach the gospel. This is not about the things the world values, the the pageantry, the showmanship of, of preaching. That's not what it's about. I'm preaching about a crucified carpenter, yeah, I'm, I'm preaching about the Messiah who was, who was uh, uh, killed and, and humiliated before men. That's the message of, of radical humility. And so for you guys to be trying to outrank each other, it completely misses the very message that you claim to embody. And then he goes even deeper. He talks about how Christ is the wisdom and power of God. And he quotes the Old Testament. He actually quotes the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 29, 14. And one of the things that he says is that God is going to destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning he will thwart. It's a really interesting passage that he, that he quotes. Uh, he's quoting from Isaiah when Isaiah the prophet is talking uh, to the king of Judah and saying, look, you want to do the realistic thing, quote unquote, and you want to ally with Egypt against the Assyrians. But I'm telling you, wait on the Lord, trust the Lord. Now that makes no sense. That's foolishness. It's foolishness to just sit there and trust the Lord will defend you. Instead, you should make the practical decision and ally with Egypt. And God tells Isaiah, or rather speaks through Isaiah, and says, this shows the hardness of your heart. You don't get it. To the world, trusting in God alone is foolishness. And what is wise is to ally with Egypt. But through the eyes of faith, you understand that trusting God is the sensible, reasonable thing to do. Now, how does that apply to the situation in Corinth. Well, Paul's saying, you're making the same mistake that uh, that Judah made thousands of years ago. In other words, you're going by the world standards. These are the attributes that make you elevated. Your social status, your wealth, your money, your knowledge, your eloquence, all these things. And he says, that's like, that's relying on Egypt. That's a worldly way of thinking. Instead, you need the godly way of thinking, the spiritual way of thinking, and rely on God and trust in God. Because the way that God does things is different from the world. It's destroying the wisdom of the wise, and it's thwarting the discernment of the world. And that's what Christ crucified embodies. Jews want signs. Greeks want soaring rhetoric. But God gives them a crucified Messiah. It doesn't make any sense. How can weakness be the conquering of death? How can the Messiah be one who suffers and is humble? It makes no sense unless you have your eyes opened up by the Spirit of God, to understand the wisdom of the cross. And Paul says, think about you guys. None of you guys are special. You guys weren't the the top of your class. You guys weren't noble. 
And yet God chose you to be his people. In fact, not only does God not choose the strong, but he seems to have an affinity for the weak and for the despised and for the the lowest of people. Because he loves using the weakest people as his vessels to shame the strong. Because when when his power goes through the weak, it demonstrates that it truly is him and him alone that is the source of power and victory. And Paul is embodying that. He's saying in the beginning of chapter two, when I showed up, I didn't show up as like the really hip, awesome, you know, charismatic preacher guy. I came in weakness and in fear and trembling. I would have failed every public speaking class. And I wasn't coming with plausible words of wisdom, but I came in a demonstration of spirit and power. Now, this is really interesting. Paul doesn't say, I didn't come to you in power. He says, I did come to you in power, but it was power that was manifested through my weakness. That's something we have to remember. When we preach the gospel, when we tell people about Christ, we are not uh, going without power. Rather, we are actually demonstrating the power of God by humbly and clearly communicating the word of God. So when you share the word of God with people, when you hear it preached, the power of God is being unveiled. And part of humility is getting yourself out of the way so that people can know this is about God, not about the messenger, not about how cool and witty you are. And and, and that's when they realize, man, I, I got saved because God saved me. And he used fallible, weak people like you and me to do it. And that should give you great confidence. And that's what gave Paul that humble confidence. Now, Paul actually does a little bit of irony, or he does a little bit of sarcasm. So he's looking at the church at Corinth and saying, some of you are elevating yourself because you think yourself so mature. And he goes, so among the mature, we do impart wisdom. So he's kind of saying, you want to act like you're this special tier of Christian? You're so spiritual? Well, let me, let me tell you a, a secret spirituality. Let me give you the wisdom of this, uh, uh, that, that was hidden from this age, this secret hidden wisdom of God. It's Christ crucified, right? And he uses this language of ages, He says that Christ crucified is not the wisdom of this age. Because if it was, then Jesus wouldn't have been crucified. People in this world would have just accepted him and loved him. But Christ came in such a scandalous way that the reaction was rejection. Because the wisdom of God is antithetical to the wisdom of the world. So notice this thing. In in the Jewish mind and in the biblical worldview, history is broken down into two time periods. There's the present age of darkness and a future age of righteousness. And in the death and resurrection of Christ, that future age has broken into this present dark age. So Christians are people who, are, who, who have been transformed to be like people of the future age, but they still live in this present age of darkness. And what he's trying to say is this. The present age of darkness does not understand the ethics and the truth of this future age that's coming in through Christ and his spirit. So you should not expect people to love this message. This is something that the world hates. And yet God has decreed that it be this way. God has decreed that that the world would reject this foolishness because he wants to demonstrate that it is his power alone and not the generation of man that saves people. God is the only savior. Now, how do you and I know the truth? How do we become part of this future age living in the present? Well, God tells us it's through the Spirit. God has revealed these things through the Spirit. And he actually talks about how the Spirit of God searches everything, even the depths of God. And he uses an example, you know, only a person knows his own thoughts. 
And only God's Spirit knows the mind of God. So if we're going to know God, we have to have access to him. But the only way we can do that is if God gives us his spirit who knows his mind. Now, there's a little bit of Trinitarian language here. I want you to think about this. The only person who can know God's mind is God himself. The spirit knows the mind of God. Therefore, the spirit is God. Paul is hinting at the deity and the, and, and the godhood of the spirit. The spirit, the Holy Spirit is the one true God. But you also see a distinction. The spirit of God and God, who is really referencing the Father, are distinct persons. So there's one God, but he exists eternally in two, or sorry, in three equal eternal persons. Almost committed a heresy there. But you can see this sort of uh, early Trinitarianism that Paul is wrestling with and articulating. But the point is this, we have the Spirit of God. And because we have the Spirit of God, our eyes are opened so that we can see things as they truly are. So the natural person, the person of this age of darkness, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because they themselves are not spiritual. They don't have the taste buds to taste what God is making for them, the meal that he's making for them. But when you're converted, God changes your taste buds so that you love the things of God. Think about what the new creation is, a world of righteousness and love and worship of God. Now, if you don't love God and don't want to worship him and don't love righteousness, well, the new creation is going to be a terrible place for you. But God, by his spirit, unlocks and unshackles our hearts from sin so that we begin to love and crave the things that God himself loves. That's why he says, if you're a spiritual person, meaning somebody who has the Holy Spirit and who, in having the Holy Spirit, has the mind of God, meaning you know who God is and through his word you know what he commands of you, you have a real relationship, a real knowledge of God, a true knowledge of God, not an exhaustive knowledge, but a true knowledge of God, then don't worry about all those other people judging you. They might say you're foolish. They might judge you as stupid, but you know the truth. You have the mind of the Lord by the Spirit. You have Christ in all of his benefits. So don't worry about people looking down upon you. You know the truth. You have the truth. You know Christ. You can be judged by no one for what you believe. And this is a really important principle. I think this is how we are to understand the radical message of the gospel. What he is showing us is that everything that we value in the world, the, the power and the status and all of these vain things, they're foolishness to God. And so if the church values those vain things, we are not valuing the things of the future age. We are not valuing the things of the kingdom. In other words, someone should walk into a church and not feel like it's just a baptized social club where everybody treats each other like they do in the world. But when you walk into the church, it should be a counterculture, a radical shock to people, to see people of different classes serving one another, uh, 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 caring for one another, praying for one another, deferring to one another. This is a really subversive reality that is brought in. And if we aren't careful to keep the cross at the forefront of our minds, we can slip into the error of the Corinthians. And if we do that, we're going to, we're, we're not only going to to uh, contradict the content of our message, but we're going to contradict the character of our message. That not only do we preach Christ crucified, but we live Christ crucified. We live humbly. We live self-sacrificially. We live not for ourselves, but for Christ, for the sake of others. 
And the promise is that it is through the cross that resurrection comes. And that's going to be a major theme to the rest of 1 Corinthians. <laughs>